All right, if you'll turn with me to Philippians. We are in chapter 2. We're making some progress here. So Philippians chapter 2. We'll be in the first four verses this morning. So turn your attention to the reading of God's Word this morning. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks this morning for this word. Lord, we ask that you would that you would strengthen us. Open our eyes to see the truth. Lord, may your spirit convict where we need it. Lord, use a broken vessel like myself. Fill me with your spirit that is your words that are spoken this morning. Open eyes and ears and soften hearts. Lord, we pray this for your glory, for our good and joy. Amen. Strife. Webster defines strife as bitter, sometimes violent conflict or dissension. War could define it further as exertion or contention for superiority. And that definition has become more and more real in our eyes the past two weeks, hasn't it? So we've seen Russia, because of one man's lust for power and prestige and empire, pursue war in Ukraine. And it is war. It's not a special operation, as Putin uh, wants it to be declared. It is war and it is devastating. And it's not only disastrous for Ukraine, but it's disastrous for the citizens in Russia as well, and it will likely have ripple effects to differing degrees throughout the world. Yet, in the midst of the horrors of war, there have been some amazing stories of heroism and love. Saw a video on Twitter uh, the other week, and I actually verified it with friends. We have friends who speak Ukrainian and Russian, and I sent them the video and said, can you please check and make sure this is actually real, uh, because too much comes across that's, that's faked. And they said, yes, it's absolutely real. This is exactly what happened. And in it, it shows a, a young Russian soldier. He's surely in his teens at the time. Um, he's being fed and cared for by Ukrainians. A soldier who's come into their country, he's being fed and cared for by Ukrainians. And not only that, they video call his mother in Russia. And they say to her, he's healthy, we're feeding him, he's alive. He didn't know why he came. Soldiers are hungry, abandoned. It's not his fault that he's here. And he cries and you can see it. And she comforts him. And then later on, towards the end of the call, well, in all of this, you can see this confusion and relief on his face. 
the pain, the, the gratitude, in the eyes of a soldier as citizens of a country that his country is invading, show him love and care. They count his needs as utterly significant. And at the end of the video on that picture on the right, they say to his mother, it's okay, it's okay, God with you, he's healthy, he's good. And he kisses his fingers to his mom. Now, I have no idea if these Ukrainians are believers. No clue. Nothing says it there, but you know what? They're acting like them. They're acting like people who know the love and grace of Christ. They're giving themselves and their, their very meager, probably, resources at the time to care for one who is at that time, whether he knows why or not, is even an enemy to their livelihood and to their very lives. Now, again, I, I don't know their spiritual status, but what they are doing is such a, a, a beautiful illustration of how believers are to live and love. It hits at least part of what Paul calls us to in these first four chapters, or first four verses of chapter two. They're a continuation of what he called for in 127, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, at that point, Paul issued a call to stand firm together against the opponents of the gospel, to trust in Christ, to suffer for Him. And, and he, his, his, part of his main thrust was doing it together in a unified manner. But that last section of chapter 1 is not everything that unity entails. As one commentator put it, he said, unity is not just a useful weapon against the world, but rather it belongs to the very essence of the Christian life. For it is the way in which Christians display outwardly what the gospel is and means to them. Unity is the gospel's hallmark. It says to all who examine it, this life is worthy of the gospel. Think along with, they will know we're Christians by our love. They'll know it by our unity. So Paul goes on to lay out more about unity in chapter 2. This time in terms of how we live in all of life, particularly in the life of community, and we're going to see it in three parts. We're going to see foundational unity. So what's the foundation of it? Directional unity. And then, I know this might sound a little oxymoronic, individual unity. Okay, so we're going to go through those three things this morning. So first, foundational unity, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So, so, therefore, here is, it's a following on, a connection back to 127, and it's going to resolve, that so is going to resolve, this is kind of an, inner, uh, uh, an interruption in a sense. It's going to resolve in the next verse with, so complete my joy. That's the verb that comes. But before Paul gets to what this life looks like more and what it is that will complete his joy, he first gives the foundation. He gives the grounding of what he is calling for. Now, he uses language, I think, that can be confusing a bit in English. Because if we use the term if, it expresses doubt and uncertainty, right? 
Um, well, if I get to go here or if I get to go there, there's, there's not a promise to that. That's not a surety. But what Paul is actually saying here is more along the lines of, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and surely there is, there has to be. Paul is reminding the believers, the readers, everyone of what is true, what is foundational in our Christian life. And then he's going to help us see how it applies. Paul always does this. He consistently grounds practical living in doctrinal truth. Practical living flows out of doctrinal truth. Okay? Now, though that's true, there's some debate by, by some commentators over whether these statements or clauses refer to those objective realities or to our subjective experience. And I would answer yes. You've heard me say that before. It's, it, it refers to both the objective realities and our subjective experience of those realities in our lives. Because that objective reality, by nature, will bring about an experience for us. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ. What Paul is focusing on here is the encouragement, the consolation of our relationship with Christ. Of the fact that as believers in Christ who, who are in union with Him, we are saved from our sins. We have a refuge. We have a dwelling place that's safe and secure. And there's a sweetness to this. It's what we need in a world of strife and pain and heartache. But folks, it's also what we need in our own lives as we have hearts that are full of strife and pain and heartache just as much as the world. Isaiah 40 is a great announcement of the comfort and care and concern of the Lord for His people. Verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. And then down to verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. You hear the care and the comfort and the consolation of the Lord, the compassion. This is what the Lord does for His people, Psalm 94, 19. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolation cheers my soul. Well, then in the New Testament, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, uh, beginning of that letter, beautiful, beautiful picture, where Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. That's why I kind of have to believe that some of those folks that ministered to that Russian soldier were believers, shared abundantly in the comfort of Christ, and they share that comfort too. They're suffering, and yet they share in comfort. 
Well, this leads us to the next clause in our text, and comfort from love. The love of God in Christ is our great comfort. God's love, His steadfast and immovable love. In my daily readings, as of late, the steadfast love of God has been leaping off the page more and more. Just, you know, I think I've said this, I might have even said this a couple weeks ago, but you buy a new car, you've never seen it before, and then you drive and you see like every car looks like that. You think about the steadfast love of God, and then you start reading, particularly through the Psalms, and you just see it everywhere. Even if it's not specifically mentioned, you're like, that is God's steadfast love. But one of the most familiar is Lamentations 3, starting in verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that we should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. His mercies never cease. Encouragement in Christ and comfort from love, those two clauses go together beautifully. They speak of what we receive, what we experience as believers because of who God is because of the glorious grace of the gospel, because of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every believer in Christ has been profoundly affected by the gospel. We may not know it experientially as much, but we grow in that understanding. We have all received encouragement and comfort, and Paul is imploring us, call that to mind. Remember what is true. Understand that we are by nature sinners and rebels, those bound for eternity apart from Christ. But now in Christ, we can say along with the psalmist, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. Well, then Paul goes on to write, if any participation in the Spirit. That word participation is koinonia. We've seen that already in Philippians. It deals with fellowship or partnership in the Spirit. This is communion with one another in Christ because of the Spirit, because of His work, because the Spirit of Christ is inhabiting all believers. We are united in a profound manner. And that truth has significant implications. Paul wrote in Romans 12, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. We participate together. We are members of one body. And so that should affect how we care for one another, how we live, how we love. And then he ends it with, if there is any affection and sympathy, 
We could just as easily translate that as any tender mercy and compassion. Folks, those are realities of who God is, our good shepherd, Jesus, who looked out over the crowds and he had compassion on them. We've experienced these realities. We've felt them in our own lives as believers. Now, the question, and we've already talked about it a little bit, but why does Paul go through all this? Why take the time to remind the believers of these truths about God that they've experienced in their lives? Well, because this is the proper motivation. Out of who God is and what He has done in our lives, out of truth, rather than giving some moralistic speech. Paul was radically against mere moralism. This is by no means, when we read through 2, 1 through 4 here, this is not, hey, people, suck it up and do better. That's not what he's saying. He's saying because of who you are in Christ, because of what God has done, this then is how you should live. He's helping them to see what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel, one that reflects the truth, to live in line with the truth. He grounds his, his exhortation in the objective realities of God. Paul wants us to know why we are to live in love, in unity, with affection and sympathy for one another, because these are true of God Himself. And the fact is, I, all of you, have experienced this in your life through other Christians to some degree or another. Other Christians who have been conduits of God's grace in your lives. You may not have recognized it, but it's happened. They've loved you. They've comforted you. They've brought you into the fellowship and, and much more. And yes, I know some have failed failed in some pretty big and drastic ways to care for others in the church, like the church is to care for itself, but like the body of Christ is to care for itself. But that's not because they lived in line with Christ, but because they lived according to the flesh. And so Paul is calling us all to recount what we have received, to recount and remember who God is, and then to live according to those truths. So then he moves into the command. Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, here's an important point to remember. One commentator put this. He said, Paul saw unity as a byproduct of the great truths on which the gospel rests. But he did not see it as coming about automatically or effortlessly. It is natural in relation to the gospel, but it will not come naturally, only by effort, obedience, and deliberate cultivation. It's natural, but it doesn't, we don't just, you don't pick it up through osmosis. <laughs> we, we have to work towards it. We obey, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul commands the believers to complete his joy. Now, I want you to consider again where Paul is as he writes this. So he's saying, complete my joy, and we'll get into what he says, as he's in prison. 
Calvin wrote this. He said, here again, we see how little anxiety he had as to himself, provided only it went well with the church of Christ. He was kept shut up in prison and bound with chains. He was reckoned worthy of capital punishment. Before his very view were tortures. Near at hand was the executioner. Yet all these things do not prevent his experiencing unmingled joy, provided he sees that the churches are in a good condition. Paul's unmingled joy comes about from what he'll say. Joy, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, Paul's life seemed to reflect that fruit well. He rejoiced. We've already seen him rejoice in the gospel being proclaimed, even though out of selfish ambition. As long as the gospel was proclaimed, he could rejoice. But yet here, what he says that will complete that joy, what will fill up the joy to the full, is when harmony and unity is the dominant note in the church. It's at that point that Paul's joy will be complete. He commands them to do this by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, what does all that mean? being of the same mind, to think the same. It, but, it, but it's more than that. It deals with the overall direction of one's life. It includes the will and the decisions. In this, there is a, a oneness in intent and in temper in our disposition towards one another. Now, Paul is not calling the people to uniformity, but to unity. Not to uniformity where we all look exactly alike and walk in lockstep, but to unity amid the diversity of gifts that God has given us. And unity in the truth. This is not unity apart from truth, okay? He's calling us to unity within the church of Christ that believes the truth. We're to seek the same objective in the ways God has called, and in the ways God has called each of us and made us in our gifting by the Spirit. We're to have a like-mindedness and then having the same love. And that's a reciprocal love, isn't it? It's based on the love of Christ. Now, what is the character of the love of Christ? I think probably one of the most defining aspects of the character of the love of Christ is it's self-sacrificial. It's self-sacrificial. It's love that puts others first. Love that did not consider himself, but the lives of others. I think in the garden in Luke 22, it says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. He knew what was coming. He knew it was pain and torture. And he said, not, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's self-sacrificial. Christ became a servant to save sinners, to save His people. He gave of Himself completely for the good of others. Now, further, Paul commanded, being in full accord and of one mind, to be united in spirit or harmonious. 
The point is that rather than strife and self-interested jockeying for place and power, there is to be harmony in pursuing the same goal. Believers are to be intent on one purpose, moving towards a single end that is above and beyond any personal goal. All of these, I think, pound home the fact that as believers, the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, is to be first in our hearts. It can never be, my kingdom come, my will be done. And too often, that's our prayer. Lord, bless all my plans so that I'm doing really well. Rather than looking, Lord, your kingdom come, you work in my life and direct me according to your purpose. See, if we're preoccupied with our own personal agendas and building our own kingdoms, we're not going to be able to focus on anything but ourselves. So this is directional unity. We're focused on the same goal, having the same purpose. It's pursuing the glory of God, living for Christ, seeking to live like our Savior, being more and more conformed to, our, to His image, living and loving as Christ. We do that in truth. We do that in grace. We, we do that together as a community. But that won't be seen in community unless individually we do what it takes to be unified in this manner. So then Paul gives both negative and positive commands to each of us. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. When you read that, doesn't that just sound like kind of a a more fleshed out or a more detailed version of Christ's call on the lives of disciples? Mark 8, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Take up your cross and follow him. In principle, this is what Paul is calling us to to die to self interest, to die to our selfish ambition. We're to live in the way of the Savior. Paul uses that term, selfish ambition. And if you stop and think about that term, it's a pretty egocentric term. <laughs> Scripture is soundly against it. In Romans 2.8, Paul wrote that those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, so those who are selfishly ambitious, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The words listed as one of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5.20, there it's translated as rivalries. You can see how selfish ambition and rivalries, how those work so much together. In James 3.14 and 16, he wrote, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice." Folks, selfish ambition is mercenary. 
It's what's in it for me. And those who have this, uh, uh, as one dictionary stated, cannot lift their gaze to higher things. They are always turned inward, focusing on what is best for them, and that's it, and darn the rest of you. So selfish ambition. But then Paul adds conceit. Now, this in some older translations is translated as empty conceit or vain glory. It's glory that has no real weight or meaning. There's nothing to it. It does not last. You know what the conceited person will do is they will constantly provoke others and put them down in order to gain that place of false glory. Look at Galatians 5, 26. And the glory this gained in that way, that false empty, vainglory is of such a, a massive contrast to the glory that is received from the Father. And we'll see more of that next week as we look through verse 5 through 11 and see Christ as He humbled Himself. He became the name that is above every name. Or do we want the glory received from the Father? What Paul is stating here is for all times. He does not say from like 10 to 2 in the afternoon, this is when you should be like this. Or 10 to noon on Sundays, when you're with church people, you should be like this. This is a universal command. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing within the church, in our families, at work, wherever, there is nothing that is to be done in our lives that has any whiff of this. I, I, I wish selfish ambition and conceit smelled like what was in our neighborhood the other night. So we drove by, and there's a skunk dead under a car out in front. And I can't imagine those people who are driving that car now, because it sat over that dead skunk for at least a day. If our selfish ambition and conceit would have the whiff of that skunk, we'd do a lot better at not being that way. But the more we know the gospel, the more it will stink like a skunk. The more we remember the encouragement and the comfort from love. You see, what we're to do then is in humility we're to count others more significant than ourselves. We're not to act in pride. Scripture roundly condemns pride. Isaiah 2.11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Humble is what we are to be. Recognizing rightly who we are, dependent creatures of a holy God, and truly, folks, we're actually dependent on each other. None of us are autonomous. None of us can live on our own completely. We are dependent beings. And the way we practice humility, Paul talks about, is in how we treat each other. The word that he translates as more significant in our text is actually used two other times in Philippians. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul wrote, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing the more significant worth of knowing Christ my Lord. And in 4.7 where he writes, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. 
And I think that gives us insight into what Paul wrote here in the sense that more significant means that we view others as better than or surpassing us, which means that we have to have a clear understanding of our own unworthiness. Folks, we're not Christians. God's not lucky to have us because we're so good. We are Christians sheerly by the mercy and grace of God. Now, notice here that Paul brings this unity and standing firm together down to the lowest common denominator, the individual, as one that is not selfishly ambitious or conceited, but humble, who understands him or herself and and puts the welfare of others before. Paul wants us to stand firm and be steadfast together, but that that togetherness, that unity, it depends on individuals. It depends on you. And then he goes on and says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here is profound concern for one another. Paul is commanding us to pay careful attention to others' needs. He's calling us to love each other well. John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now listen, this is not a prohibition of care for our own lives. Okay, maybe it's something akin to you're on the airplane, you know, you get on the airplane and they give you the good old safety speech at the beginning. They say, put your oxygen mask on first before you help the child, because you're no good if you don't actually care for yourself. But they've never said, put your own oxygen mask on and grab the others and hold them and hoard them for yourselves. We're to turn and to help and to love. What Paul is against is our selfish preoccupation where we don't care for others. We hoard and only seek our own good. Honestly, we have to care for ourselves in order to love others well, but it is in order to love others well. It's not an end in itself. Folks, I hope we all know what it's like to be in a place where this is true. I think it's true here in a pretty large degree, but as Paul would say and other Scripture would say, let's excel still more. Because I think the sad thing is, is we all know what it's like to be in a place where this isn't true. We all know what it's like for our hearts when this isn't true. And we know the strife that that can cause. And we have to reckon with that. And what we do is we go to the gospel, where it's where we've been that cause of strife. We go to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We repent, therefore, and turn back that times of refreshing may flow from the Spirit of God.
Folks, Paul calls us to this. Not just because it's the best way to live, but first and foremost, because we follow Christ. We are Christians. We are united to Him in spirit. And this is who Christ is. This is who our Savior is. This is how He lived and continues to live. He is continually at the throne of the Father, continually making intercession for us. But I think we also do this in Christ because this will bring about the most joy in our lives. You look at Christ's life and who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. He did this for joy. And in our lives as we live in this way, this is the joyous life. It, it might be difficult. It will be difficult. It will be painful as we come to confront our own selfishness and our own conceit. Folks, we're all on this journey. I wish I could stand up here and say, I've got this down. I, I need your prayers. I need the Lord. I need the gospel because I don't. I'm the cause of too much strife and pain. But thank the Lord for the gospel and the goodness of Jesus to where we with our weary hearts can go to Him and find rest and relief. And in that rest and relief, as He restores us and strengthens our hearts and our souls, we can, as those then who have experienced any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and tenderheartedness and mercy and compassion and sympathy, we can live in the way God has called us in the goodness of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we need you to be at work. I need you to be at work. Lord, I'm just one man frail and imperfect, calling the rest of us, one beggar who's found bread, saying, come, let's all go. We go together, Lord. Let us be a church, let us be a people who, who run together towards the goodness of Jesus towards the joyous life lived in Christ our Lord. We pray this all in His name. Amen.